Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to discuss neuroaxial anesthesia. We're going to go through the anatomy of the spinal cord, talk about what the medications and the goal of doing a spinal versus an epidural are, and then go into the actual procedures of doing a spinal and how we go ahead and put that in versus doing an epidural and how we put that in, why we would do one versus the other, and then some complications that can occur from that. So without further ado, this is going to be a jam-filled 30 minutes of a lot of information. So try to stick with us here. Let's just jump right into the anatomy. Remember that you have different sections on the spinal cord. So you have seven cervical vertebrae, you have 12 thoracic, five lumbar, and five sacral. So the nerves will come out from the spinal column in that intervertebral space. The cervical nerves are going to be named for the vertebrae that's just below them. And so the nerves are going to be coming out just above. So C1 vertebrae, the C1 nerve root is going to come out just above that C1 vertebrae. This is why you have a C8 nerve because you have a transition from the nerves being named above the vertebrae to then when you transition into the thoracic section, now the nerves are going to be coming out underneath the vertebrae. And that's why you have the C8 nerve, even though you don't have eight cervical vertebrae. The vertebral bodies are going to be the discs of the vertebrae. So that's kind of like the larger body base section of it. Posterior to this is going to be a ring and that's where you're going to have the spinal cord. And then you'll have spinous processes extending just posterior to that ring and then you'll have transverse processes extending laterally on each side. Your supraspinous ligament is going to run between the outside of each spinous process that'll connect the spinous processes to each other. You have the interspinous ligaments, which will run from the inferior side of one of the spinous processes to the superior side of the next spinous process. The ligamentum flavum, this is going to come into play when we're talking about different landmarks that you're going to be going through. This is going to be a really thick ligament that is going to connect the lamina on the posterior or lateral sides of that ring structure. So kind of bordering there with your spinal column. On the anterior side of the ring, so again, that's right around the spinal cord, you're going to have the posterior longitudinal ligament. The anterior longitudinal ligament is on the anterior side of the vertebral bodies. I think this is confusing for me sometimes because you have to keep in mind many times when we're looking at this anatomy, we're looking at it from the back to the front, right? Because we're doing, you know, uh, epidural or uh, spinal. And so we're going from the skin on the back to the front. And we still have to remember that these are all named based on anatomically looking at a patient from the front. And so sometimes I feel like what should be the anterior posterior ligament because of how we are positioned to the patient, keep in mind that the posterior ligaments are actually going to be what's closer to you. The anterior ligaments is what's going to be actually farther away from you. Right. So let's do a recap here. Looking from that posterior side in through the back into the vertebrae. You're first going to pass the skin, then the subcutaneous tissue, and then you're going to reach the supraspinous ligament, which is going to run along the lane from top to bottom and connect all the back of those vertebrae together, which is that spinous process in the very midline coming out of that vertebrae. So you're going to cross through that supraspinous ligament, 
And then if you're going between two vertebrae, there's going to be an up and down ligament that runs along those spinous processes that connects each one. So you're going to go through that ligament and then you're going to come to that ring structure. And that ring structure is going to be bordered here by the ligamentum flavum. And that's that big, thick ligament that you got to pass through, Tanner was talking about. And then you're going to open up into that ring structure. Now, we're going to get to that in a second, but that's going to be where your spinal cord is. If you go all the way through that ring structure and you reach the big body, the vertebral body of the vertebrae, before you hit that body, you're going to have the posterior longitudinal ligament. So we should never reach that when we're going with the spinal or an epidural because that means we've gone through the spinal cord to get there. So you should never hit that posterior longitudinal ligament. But it's on the posterior side of those vertebral bodies running up and down. And then on the anterior side of those vertebral bodies are the anterior longitudinal ligament. So those two ligaments you should never encounter. Really what you're going to be focusing on is going through those first three, which are going to be the supraspinous ligament, the interspinous ligament, and then the ligamentum flavum. Once you've gotten through those and we've gotten into this ring structure, that's where we're going to talk about three layers of tissue that are going to be called your dura matter, your arachnoid matter, and your pia matter. And that's outside working in. So after we've crossed the ligamentum flavum, we're first going to come up on this dura matter. The space in between the ligamentum flavum and the dura matter is called your epidural space. And thankfully, somebody named an epidural for the fact that we're trying to get into that epidural space when we're doing an epidural. So that makes sense. Once you cross the ligamentum flavum, you've now reached the epidural space, and this is the target zone of when we do an epidural, which we'll talk about in a second. If you continue to move inward, you're going to pass that dura matter, and now you're in the subdural tissue. And the subdural tissue is appropriately named on the other side of the dura matter, or subdural. The next layer is going to be your arachnoid matter. Once you cross through that, you're in the subarachnoid tissue, or the, what we call the intrathecal space. So those are two names that I at first didn't realize were the same thing. So the subarachnoid space is the same thing as the intrathecal space, and this is the target zone when we do a spinal. This is where all the cerebral spinal fluid is held, and this is the target zone then when we do that spinal. So you want to see that cerebral spinal fluid coming out of your needle when you do a spinal because this is the target zone. The next layer is the pia matter. And once you cross the pia matter, that is where the actual nerves are held coming, running up and down the spinal cord. So theoretically, we should never be piercing through that pia matter. When we do a spinal, we just want to stop at that subarachnoid space and not go through the pia matter. And when we do an epidural, we just want to barely go through that ligamentum flavum and not even go past the dura matter. Now, what I didn't realize until recently is these three layers, the dura, the arachnoid, and the pia matter, when the nerves branch out from the spinal cord and go between two vertebrae, as they go out, that pia matter wraps around the individual nerve and continues out with it. The arachnoid matter wraps around that, and the dura matter wraps around that and continues out. And they're actually what form the three layers, your upinurium, your perineurium, and your endoneurium, which if you look at a picture of a bundle of nerves coming out, it's the three layers with the epineurium being the furthest out, followed by your perineurium, followed by your endoneurium. And again, that's going to be your pia matter, your dura matter, and your arachnoid matter. So ideally here, we're trying in a spinal to get past that dural matter and inject our medication into that cerebral spinal fluid and let that medication float around and basically block the nerves that are coming out of that pia matter and are wrapped in that endoneurium before it continues out through the intervertebral space between the two vertebrae. When we do an epidural, our goal then 
is to block those nerves as they've already passed the dura mater or are continuing out and are going into that paravertebral space. So that's the difference between the two. So hopefully that makes sense that when we do a typical midline approach to either an epidural or a spinal, we're going to go through the supraspinous ligament, the interspinous ligament, the ligamentum flavum, and then reach that epidural space. And if we're doing a spinal, we're going to continue past that dura matter and across that arachnoid matter. And we're going to be into the subarachnoid space. And that is the goal for a spinal. If you do a paramedian approach, this is where you go slightly to the side. You don't just go straight in through the center of the back and you're going to bypass that supraspinous and interspinous ligaments. And you're going to hit that ligamentum flavum will be the first main ligament that you hit, and then you go in through the rest of the layers the same. So that's the key difference between if you do a paramedian approach, which is maybe an inch to the side and you angle more towards the center versus just going straight midline through the center. Nice. So the ligament and flavum is really going to be the really thick ligament. It's actually two ligaments that are joined together. And that's why it's so structurally significant. That's really what you're going to feel when you're moving through that, when you feel for that loss in resistance as you're pushing through that ligament. The supraspinous and the intraspinous, those aren't going to be so significant as you move through those. And again, if you go up here median, you're not even going to go through those like Cole said. So if you're being quizzed or you're trying to talk through what you're doing, that really thick ligament that you're moving through, that's going to be your ligamentum flavum. Talking about some more of the anatomy before we move on to some more of the specifics of the epidural and the spinal, let's talk about the ending of the spinal cord. So the spinal cord ends typically at L1, L2. It kind of tapers down to a point. This point is called the conus medullaris. Past that, is going to be basically a collection of free-floating nerves. This is called your cauda equina. This is a collection of nerves that go from the conus medullaris down to the dural sac. Going past the dural sac, you'll have some nerves that are just encapsulated by the pia mater, and this is known as your phalum terminale, and that will terminate down into the coccyx. What's important for us is the cauda equina. Again, this is a collection of lumbar and sacral nerves that are going to be more like free-floating. It's called cauda equina because it looks kind of like a horse's tail. But what's important here is that since they move freely, they're less likely to be punctured. This is really nice for us when we're sticking needles into this space. What could change this is if you have a hematoma or if you have altered anatomy, if you have really high volumes that you're putting into this area, all of these things can lead to what's called cauda equina syndrome. This can present as bowel or bladder dysfunction, low back pain, and you can even have lower extremity motor weakness, which may be a little bit confusing because this is what you're expecting to see anyways, but this is going to be a profound effect with the lower extremity motor weakness. We should also understand the blood supply for the spinal cord. So the spinal cord will get blood from one anterior and two posterior spinal arteries that run the length of the spinal cord. On the posterior spine, you have these arteries that come from the subclavian and intercostal arteries. These are less risk for ischemia than the anterior artery because that comes from the vertebral artery and that one is going to be more at risk for ischemia. The artery of Adamakowitz is an anastomotic connection from the aorta that connects to the anterior spinal artery between T7 and L4. So this is actually what supplies two-thirds of the blood to the lower spinal cord. Remember that the anterior artery is going to be more at risk for ischemia. 
And so it's just important to have an understanding of where this is all coming from and, and what is supplying the anterior side. Again, remember, this is going to be that anastomotic connection from the aorta from T7 to L4. All right. So hopefully that is a quick review of the anatomy and what we're trying to do here. So the goal of neuroaxial anesthesia is going to be blocking the signal going through these neurons that are coming in and out of these intervertebral spaces, the space between two vertebrae when they go out to the lateral side of that ring-like structure. So we should know that it's easier to block unmyelinated smaller neurons. So the larger the neuron in diameter, along with the more myelination there is, the harder it is for our local anesthetic to get in there and block those sodium channels and block the signal going through. So there are a couple different fibers that we talk about. We talk about A fibers, B fibers, and C fibers. B fibers are the small, lightly myelinated autonomic fibers that are going to be blocked first. Specifically, when we're targeting in that thoracic region, that's going to be more your sympathetic because we don't have the parasympathetic nervous system having neurons leaving these spaces in the thoracic region. So mainly here, we're going to be focused with the sympathetic fibers leaving in this region. And because they're small and unmyelinated, they're going to be blocked first. This is also why we see a lot of hypotension when we do epidurals and spinals. It's because we're blocking these sympathetic neurons. So we're not going to have as many catecholamines being released, and we're not going to be able to contain that sympathetic tone. The C fiber is going to be next. And the C fiber is a non-myelinated fiber that conducts our cold temperature, slow pain signals up to the brain. And they're going to be blocked next because again, they have no myelination and they're smaller. A fibers are going to be the last to be blocked. And there's a couple different subtypes of A fibers. A delta will be blocked first, then A beta, all the way up to A alpha. A alpha is your motor fibers, whereas A beta has a little bit of the touch sensory fibers. So that's why alpha, which is motor, is the last thing to be lost. You usually will see that autonomic nervous system be blocked first, followed by the sensory, followed by the motor. And it reverses in the exact opposite direction. Patients will start to get their motor function a little bit before their sensation, a little bit before their autonomic nervous system comes back. And this is why when you're starting your case, you'll ask the patient, you know, can you wiggle your toes? Because if they are unable to wiggle their toes, then you're thinking that if they have lost motor, then they've lost sensory. Obviously, you'd still go down and check and make sure that they're feeling pinches or not feeling pinches. But it's a good test to make sure that your block is set up if they are not able to use their motor function. On the other side of it, when you take them to pack you, you have them wiggle their toes. Sometimes they can do that before they'll start getting some of their sensation back. Like Cole was saying, just the reverse order of how that comes back. Right. And knowing that it's also important to know what level you're going to have these three things, autonomic, sensory, and motor blockade. So when we talk about dermatomes. Dermatomes are correlations in areas of the body that correlate with a level of nerve that is coming out of an intervertebral space. So if I say T1 and T2 dermatome, for example, there's a map of the body that you can look at to know what dermatomes that would be. And I know that T1, T2 is going to kind of be in the armpit, the very medial side of the arm area. And so I know if I have a block at T1, T2, I'm going to lose sensation to that part of the arm in the armpit. If I am saying T12, I know that's kind of more down in the groin region. T4 is up at the nipple region, et cetera. And knowing these dermatomes correlate with the nerves that are branching out of the intervertebral spaces. It is not necessarily at that exact level. 
So just because T12 is in the groin doesn't mean that the T12 vertebrae is down in the groin. Obviously, T12 is higher anatomically on the spine than that, but I know the dermatome is going to be down in that groin area. Knowing that because the autonomic nervous system is first to be blocked and it's easiest to be blocked, our medication doesn't need to be in as high of concentration to cause that blockade. So when we inject medication into the cerebral spinal fluid or into the epidural space and it rises up and we're trying to block higher and higher up in the spinal canal, I need less medication to get up there to block that autonomic nervous system. So my highest block will be that autonomic nervous system and it can be almost two or six dermatome levels higher than the sensory block because that sensory block to block those C fibers and the A beta takes more concentration to block those nerves. So that dermatome level that'll be blocked will be less, followed by the motor can almost be two more dermatomes lower than the sensory block, because again, we need a higher concentration to block that motor. So you may have somebody that has a motor block at T10 that would have an autonomic block all the way up in your upper thoracic dermatome levels. Talk about contraindications. The absolute complete contraindication for doing neuroaxial anesthesia is going to be patient refusal. The patient doesn't want it, obviously you're not going to be doing it on them. Other contraindications are going to be if a patient has sepsis, they're infected at the site you're going to inject at, if they have altered coag levels, if their plate level is below a certain amount and you can't quite get it up, if their INR is a certain amount, and this is going to be more on a case-by-case basis. Um, That main absolute contraindication completely is the patient refusal, of course. Other things can be if their cardiac instability is high, so if they have a very low blood pressure already, and we cannot get that blood pressure up, we know it's going to be dropped even more by doing this because of that block in the autonomic sympathetic nervous system. So that would be a contraindication as well as aortic or mitral stenosis. And this is because you have that fixed stroke volume due to the stenosis. And so we don't want to change the afterload that's going to be happening when we give this medication. And so if you have a patient that has aortic or mitral stenosis, it's not necessarily a complete contraindication. From what I've come across, I haven't found many people that will do this if there is a significant amount of aortic stenosis, just simply because you're going to be changing that afterload. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Student Nurse Anesthesia Podcast. For more episodes, audible care plans, and other bonus content, go to patreon.com, search Student Nurse Anesthesia Podcast, and become a member. Once a member, you'll have access to Student Nurse Anesthesia Podcast Premium, which includes all of our content ad-free right here on Apple Podcasts. So before we move into the actual process of doing a spinal or epidural, quickly we're going to run through some of the characteristics of the local anesthetics that we'll use. We'll go through some of the specific anesthetics and then we'll talk a little bit about equipment and then we'll finish out this discussion by going through the epidural and spinal processes. So the first thing you need to know, we'll talk about some characteristics of your local anesthetics. One of the big things that you'll hear about is the vericity of a local anesthetic compared to the CSF. For the most part, if something is in water, then it's going to be hypobaric. Saline is isobaric and dextrose is hyperbaric. So we're comparing this to the CSF. So hyperbaric is going to sink 
while hypobaric is going to tend to rise. Something that will change this is your patient position. And so if you have a hyperbaric solution, so that's going to tend to want to fall, then if you lay the patient supine, all that local anesthetic will end up in the lowest region of the spine. So that's going to be in the most posterior side of that. You'll get your thoracic and sacral regions. If you put the patient in Trendelenburg, then that medication would move up to your thoracic and maybe even cervical nerves at risk for a high spinal here. If you keep the patient sitting, this is where your hyperbaric solution is going to settle and you can have a saddle block there if you keep the patient sitting immediately after doing your spinal. Hypobaric solutions are going to want to raise up and again, go more towards the cervical nerves. You can cause a total or high spinal if you're left in the sitting position. If you're giving a hypobaric solution, then you'll want to put them supine. And again, this will sit at the highest point, which is going to be your lumbar region compared to your hyperbaric solution that was going to settle in your thoracic and sacral regions. So typically we like to inject around L4. We'll get into this when we talk about the actual processes here when we go into the spinal and epidural section. But when we're using the hyperbaric solution here at L4 and we immediately lay them flat, this is going to go again, remember to the lowest point since they're not sitting up anymore, that lowest point is going to be the posterior side, specifically the thoracic kyphosis point, which is going to be in the spine around T4 when laying supine. If you have increased weight, that's going to result in a higher block due to more tissue compressing on the block area, which is going to force the solution higher. That makes sense. You have less of a space and the same amount of volume is going to distribute higher. CSF volume has a similar effect, although inversely related. So if you have less CSF volume, the higher block you would actually have. A couple other things that could influence this could be actually your needle bevel direction, depending on how fast you're injecting and the direction of your initial local anesthetic. Typically, this wouldn't be very significant as you're injecting slowly. Your spread shouldn't be unidirectional. The baricity of the local anesthetic will have more of an effect than just the direction of the bevel of the needle. So when we're going to do the spinal epidural, there are several different types of needles we can use. These are classified as either a tapered tip pencil point needle or an open-ended cutting slash beveled needle. Examples of the pencil point are going to be Whitaker or a Sprope, whereas the cutting beveled needle is a quinky needle. And again, this is important because if we're going to be cutting through this, you're going to be more at risk of causing a tear or a hole that the CSF fluid can then leak back through or damaging a nerve actually by poking through. Whereas that tapered tip pencil point needle is less likely to puncture those nerves and it works more by spreading the tissue apart rather than cutting, if you will. So keep that in mind here that that quinky needle, it is better at, at cutting through. You're just going to be more at risk of causing a postural puncture headache, which we'll get into at the end of our talk, and also puncturing the end of those nerves themselves. In terms of local anesthetics that we can use, again, we talk more about this in our local anesthetic talk about how that process works, but just a few bullet points here. Chloropropane is a medication we can use that's very, very short-acting because it's metabolized by acetylcholinesterase. So it's good for these short cases where I don't want that spinal to last very long. You can use prilocaine. It's also short-acting. Keep in mind that it can cause some met hemoglobinemia. Lidocaine has kind of gone out of favor recently just due to the fact that it can cause some transient neurological symptoms. Signs and symptoms of this would be back pain radiating down the legs after the block has gone away. 
So they've gotten their motor back, they've gotten their sensation back, but they just had this pain radiating down their legs. Again, this usually resolves after a few days. It's not permanent, but it is seen with lidocaine. So that's why it's kind of gone out of favor in the past. Bupivacaine, this is the one that I'm most commonly seen used in my clinical practice. You can use this at 0.5, 0.75%. Uh, it's nice because it is, the way we mix it, a hyperbaric solution. So again, we're injecting in this L4 space and then laying them supine right away. It's going to settle down and go up into that T4 region, uh, which is kind of what we want to have happen. Keep in mind, you're going to need a higher dose of these medications when you do an epidural versus when you do a spinal, simply because the spinal, you're injecting a lot closer to those nerves. With the epidural, you need a higher dose because that medication needs to diffuse across the dural cuff into that CSF solution. There's also a lot of blood supply in the epidural space, so you're going to have more systemic absorption. So keep that in mind. Your local anesthetic is going to be more absorbed, and your opioids, if you add them in, are going to be more absorbed. Speaking of that, one last bullet point here. The more lipophilic these medications are, the faster the onset, but also the faster it diffuses through the tissue and out into the bloodstream and into the systemic circulation. So when we're talking about opioids, if you remember the least lipophilic opioid of the main group of medications that we talk about is morphine. So it's the least lipophilic. So it'll stay in that CSF longer because it won't go and get absorbed and diffuse out into that systemic circulation. So it'll take longer to have its onset, but it'll stay in that CSF longer and it can actually rise higher and cause some apnea just from getting up into the brainstem. Whereas with most opioids, you see an initial respiratory depression simply because they get absorbed into that systemic circulation and then go cause that respiratory depression that you would typically see if you just gave an IV dose of a opioid. So keep that in mind. That's why the least lipophilic something is, the more likely it's going to stay in that CSF and cause that later respiratory depression. All right. Hopefully you're still sticking with us. Now we're going to get into just briefly the process here for your spinal epidural, and then we'll talk about some complications to wrap this up. So first let's talk about your spinal anesthetic. The goal here, like Cole mentioned earlier, is going to be to get into that subarachnoid space. You can either go midline or you can go paramedian. Remember, if you go paramedian, you're going to bypass the supraspinous and interspinous ligaments. And so you can use this if you have maybe a tighter space between the spinous processes and you're not able to access it just directly from a midline approach. Here you can go paramedian. So it's always important to remember the layers that you're going through. So from the outside going in, you're going to go midline, skin, sub-Q, supraspinous ligament, interspinous ligament, ligamentum flavum, you have your epidural space, your dura mater, and then your subdural space. This is not really a significant space. This is basically if you just have a misplaced catheter or something that we'll talk about the subdural space. Really after the dura mater, you'll move right into the arachnoid mater and then the subarachnoid space, which is where we're aiming to go for our spinal anesthetic. A level that you should know for basically your starting point is you're going to want to get to L4. So you'll feel the top of the iliac crest before you're sterile, get an idea of how those hips align. You want to make sure that they're level, that the patient is not slouching to one side or the other, or that one hip is farther ahead than the other so that everything is completely parallel. Any kind of twisting or turning is going to make access into the space more difficult. So you'll want to have their body completely parallel to you. 
You'll want to make sure that they are chin to chest, trying to really arch out that lower back, thinking really bad posture, inverting basically the natural curvature of that lumbar space by just sticking that lower back out. This is going to make our job a lot easier feeling the spinous processes. So as they're sitting there, you check the iliac crest, make sure that those are level. You'll go midline. This is your L4 level. You'll feel the space in between the spinous processes, figure out where you want to go. Also keep in mind the way that your processes are coming out posteriorly from the spinal cord. And so when you are injecting, you're going to want to go in at a cephalad level just because it mimics the angle that these processes are going to be coming off of the posterior side of the spinal cord. As you're going in, you will initially go in with a little bit of local anesthetic to numb the area. Some people will train you to find osseous on both the cephalad and caudal side of the space so that you know exactly where you're going. Others will train you just to go the direction of your needle so that you have one path and you're not just manipulating that space several times with the same needle. Regardless, you're going to deposit a skin wheel of local anesthetic right there right below the skin. Take that needle out. You'll put in your introducer needle. You would just sink that about a centimeter, centimeter and a half. Then you can take whatever needle you choose to use. Cole mentioned the different types of needles that are available. You'll go through your introducer. As you're going in, you'll start to feel tension as you're moving forward. This is the ligamentum flavum. As you move past that, you'll feel a loss of resistance. At this point, you'll take out the guide wire. You should see CSF. You'll want to rotate, make sure that you're not up against the side of the space or something. You rotate the catheter all the way around, make sure you still have CSF leak. At this point, you can connect your local anesthetic. Make sure you have a really good grip on the back of their back with the backside of your hand. So when you're holding the needle there, you're not going to be manipulating forward or back and moving inside the subarachnoid space. You know with the CSF leak that you're in the right spot. So the worst thing you want to do is when you're connecting your local anesthetic to manipulate the needle and then undo all the hard work you've just done. It's important after you make this connection that you aspirate, make sure you have a swirl so you know that you're still getting CSF. You can inject. I've been taught that you do aspiration at the midpoint and after you inject. I know some people will say this is pointless because what are you going to do after you've injected all of the local anesthetic? If you don't get a swirl, you know, you've already injected all of your anesthetic. There's nothing you can do. Well, I think this is still a good practice is because today, for example, I was doing a spinal. I had good pre, I had good mid and post swirl. We knew we were right in the right spot. The patient still didn't get numb. And so at this point, we were thinking through kind of our differentials of what could be going wrong. And our conclusion was sometimes in the spinal kits, you can have batches of Marcane or whatever local anesthetic that are not effective. And so for us, it was really important because we knew afterwards we had good swirl. We knew that we were in the right spot. So it wasn't that we had misplaced the needle. We were very confident that it was just a bad batch of Marcane. We redosed and the patient was able to tolerate the whole procedure just fine. So moving on to epidurals, again, you're going to move past that ligamentum flavum, and the second you get past there, we're in the epidural space. I feel like the main time we think of epidurals is going to be women that are in labor. It can also be used for a little bit longer of pain control. If somebody's going to be in the hospital for several days, you want to continue that pain control, whereas the spinal may last for only a few hours. 
And so there are some other reasons that we would use an epidural besides just laboring women, even though this is the main thing that we think of. But so this epidural space, again, it's going to contain a lot of fat, a lot of blood vessels. We need to give a higher amount of medication to get it through into that CSF fluid because it does have to pass those extra layers to get in there. We're going to place it, again, similar to a spinal at that L3, L4 inner space. I'm going to use your skin wheel if you're local anesthetic. Same thing as a spinal. Everything's the same setup here. But when you take your needle in, when you get past the ligamentum flavum, there's a couple techniques you can use to determine entry into this epidural space. One of them is going to be loss of resistance. So as Tanner talked about, you have that really thick needle you're passing through. And when you're doing the spinal, you almost feel that loss of resistance but you don't need to stop necessarily instantly because you still have to go past that dural and arachnoid layers. Whereas in this example, we want to stop the second we get past that ligamentum flavum. So you can put a syringe on the backside of this needle with either air or fluid or a mixture of fluid with an air bubble, and you put a little bit of pressure. As you go through this ligamentum flavum, you're going to have a lot of resistance when you push on that syringe. And the second you break free of that ligamentum flavum, it's going to have a loss of resistance and you're going to be able to push that in. Some people use a drop of saline at the hub of their needle without a syringe. And as they push the ligamentum flavum, once you get into that epidural space, it'll suck up that drop of fluid. And it's because you're entering this potential space, which is like a negative pressure space. And it's the space between that ligamentum flavum and that dura layer. And so it'll suck up into that space. Once you're in there, you're going to give a test dose to ensure that you're in the right spot. So you can have epi mixed in with some local anesthetic and you might inject into this space that you're at and you try to watch and see if there's a change in the heart rate or blood pressure. Let's say you're in a vessel. You're going to have the heart rate jump and the blood pressure jump up. If you're all the way into the subarachnoid space, you're going to be seeing some CSF come back and you're going to have a motor blockade after a few minutes if you're doing this in the subarachnoid area. But once you know you're in the right spot, you're going to go ahead and you're going to thread a catheter through your needle and about four or six centimeters past the depth that it took you to reach that epidural space. You want to go past another four or six centimeters just so that when you pull that needle out, you're going to keep that catheter at that same distance, but just in case it does come back a little bit, you know you're going to still be in that epidural space. Because theoretically, if that end of the needle is in the epidural space, when you thread it four or six centimeters past, it's not going to poke through another layer. It's just going to work its way up vertically, depending on which direction you have your bevel. It'll go into that epidural space. And once you pull that needle out, you're going to have that catheter threaded a couple centimeters into that epidural space to decrease the chances that it's going to pull out of that epidural space. At this point, you can go ahead and hook up your epidural. Again, the volume is going to be higher than if we were doing a spinal, simply because it takes more concentration and volume of this drug to do the job that we want compared to a spinal dosing, because in the spinal dosing, we're already in the subarachnoid space. One difference to note here is that the spread is highly dependent on volume. Whereas in a spinal, that wasn't true. It was more based on the bericity that Tanner talked about. But in this case, it's more dependent on the volume because it is that potential space. And the more volume we give, the more high or low that medication is going to spread. All right, let's talk about complications that we can see from this. And then we'll wrap things up here today. So one of the main complications you can see is a posterior puncture headache. This is commonly abbreviated as PDPH. 
This is due to CSF leaking through the puncture in the dura. The CSF will drain out of this small hole, and then the brain tissue will sag down. Signs and symptoms are headache, neck stiffness. You can have some hearing issues, nausea, vomiting. This can happen up to several days after the procedure and is pretty intense. And so this is something that you definitely want to communicate before the procedure to the patient that this is a risk. Risk factors specifically for this would be patients with low BMI, females. If you've had previous issues with PDPH, then you are at more risk for having another event. You have less risk of this complication depending on the type of needle you use. And so if you use a pencil point needle, this will spread the dura rather than cut it. This will decrease your risk for basically a hole there where the CSF can drain out of. If you need to treat this, first thing you want to do is have the patient lay down you can give them caffeine. This will cause vasoconstriction. Or another treatment for this would be to do an epidural blood patch. This is kind of the main treatment that you can go to to try to resolve these symptoms. Something that we're concerned about with all of our spinals are a total or a high spinal. This is basically where the local anesthetic goes up and blocks the thoracic sympathetic fibers. You can have difficulty breathing. They can have difficulty speaking. They can have loss of consciousness. So you can have some CNS symptoms. At this point, you are going to want to convert to a general, gain an airway, make sure that you're treating their blood pressure, give fluid, possibly pressors, epi. You know local anesthetic is up at a point that could be causing some very harmful effects to the cardiovascular respiratory and CNS systems. And so you'll want to make sure that you have adequate support for that. Right. And I had a spinal yesterday where we laid the lady back supine right away. And after a few minutes, she started to tell me that she felt like she couldn't breathe. Something to keep in mind, though, is because that sensory dermatome is higher than the motor, patients may sometimes not be able to feel themselves breathing, even though they are breathing. And that loss of sensation would be a little freaky where you don't feel like you're breathing even though you are. And so again, we we tilted her head up because it was in those first few minutes after the block where it was still setting in and we were trying to get that medication to move back down just in case it was a high spinal. But just keep in mind that because that sensory dermatome is higher than the motor, they may have that feeling of they can't feel themselves breathing and it seems like they're having difficulty breathing. All right. So that is a overview of neuroactual anesthesia the anatomy behind what we do, the difference between a spinal and epidural, some of the complications that can arise from that. Keep in mind, there's a lot more to the subject than we have time to discuss. We had to keep it, I know, not short in terms of our other episodes, but short in terms of how much more information we could have put into this. So continue to look into this more. Uh, Obviously, the more hands-on you become with this, the more your skills will develop in terms of actually putting in a spinal epidural, but hopefully this helps improve the knowledge base behind the skills and the action you're going to do to take care of these patients. 